This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And we're super excited today to be joined by very special guests all the way from Austin area. We have one of the guests is named Austin from the Austin area. But we have Austin Berry and Peter Pirano from the Last Resort Recovery or Last Resort. They are here to help us figure out and uh, discuss rehab, being addicted, drugs, opioids, and all kinds of other fun stuff you were prepared to hear about when you woke up today on this rainy Conroe day. So we're really happy to have you guys. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. So, Peter, um, you have a really interesting story, and I understand you're the executive director of this facility here, um, Last Resort. How long have you guys been in business? So, Last Resort has been around for about six years. Uh, I've been with the company for two and a half. So, it's a really great title because the Last Resort is really when you're at your last resort. Am I correct? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a great play on words, right? Um, For a lot of our uh, clients, patients, guys who come to see us it is really their last chance their last shot at life their last shot at success all those kind of things so yeah so and when we are also joined by uh, one of the vips in your operation he helps with advertising marketing um visit development mm-hmm. austin barry that's the other austin that i promised and and you've been there for how long austin since we opened okay so you've been there all six years yeah i've been there since uh, 2012 i started as an entry-level tech um you know, we're a family-owned business by Bill and Ann Schneider, and I've gotten to know them really well over the years, and they're just amazing people, and they've coached me along the way, and Bill's one of my mentors, and, you know, they've been doing this for over about 25 years. They yeah. started a center in 1993 called the Life Healing Center, um, so they have plenty of experience, um, so we're not completely the new kids on the block, so we know what we're doing, and we know what we had a goal and a vision of, of being something different for men out there, and And that's interesting that you say that because as Justice's Blonde host, I'm a lady lawyer. I'm a soldier for women, but you guys don't let women into your club. Am I right? No. I mean, we have plenty of females who work with us, but uh, we do not take female patients, no ma'am. And and that is, why is is that? Is that by design? Women are too distracting? Well, I think that. uh, And wonderful. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that for for a lot of men, women are distracting. And for a lot of women, men are distracting. So it's not, um, men is just the population that we chose to treat. Um, and we believe that treatment works best in gender-specific settings, meaning that women with the women, men with the men. And yeah. the jails actually believe that, too. Yes, they do. <laughs> as yes, far they as do. isolation yeah. and, and controlling behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I think is really interesting about you is that you grew up in New York. So, I, I mean, that's interesting, just uh, Texan by convert, as I am myself. Sure. I like freedom, so You're, I came to Texas. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're very pro, a lot of good rights down sure. here sure. in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the other things I think is really interesting about you is is you started your life kind of on the fast life in the fast lane for sure. Yeah. Um, and you were in the nightclub industry. Am I right? What yep. was that? And you opened up a nightclub with your with your little brother or older brother? Older brother. Yeah. Several. We opened up a lot of nightclubs. Yes. And and basically what happened is he came into kind of a financial boon due to something that was, you know, probably addiction related for the person that yeah, kind absolutely. of started the absolutely. The, yeah. He got the a, snowball. He got hit head on by a drunk driver. Um, thank God he lived, um, but he definitely, uh, had some damage to his face. Um, and he got a real small settlement out of that and, uh, decided that he was going to invest in a, in a nightclub. Um, not sure why he chose that. Uh, he had been working in the, in the nightclub scene uh, prior, but always wanted to be his own boss. So, um, I was 16 when that happened and I had been working in a, a pizzeria, um, and they needed somebody to run the kitchen at the at the nightclub. And so that's how I ended up going on. I, I ran the kitchen at the nightclub. So you were working at a pizza place. Is it mm-hmm. in Long Island? Yeah. Okay. And then your brother said, hey, let's go open up. Yeah. What was the name of the club? Uh, the first club was called the Foggy Goggle. Okay. Uh, in Hampton Bays. Um, and so my brother, being my older brother, just wanted to take care of me. And and saw a business opportunity and saw a way that he could um, keep me by, kind of by his side and watch, watch after me. Um and so he brought me into into uh, the club scene um, and let me run the kitchen. Um, didn't really think that I would do much in the kitchen. Um, and at the end of that summer, I had uh, accumulated uh, a good bit of, of money from, from that kitchen, which shocked everybody and uh, 
became his partner moving forward. So when you say you didn't think you'd do much from the do much from the kitchen as far as Revenue. generate that much money, right. and then you were just came up with some great recipes. You were I mean, crushing it. I was slanging chicken fingers and mozzarella <laughs> sticks, but um, I think they underestimated uh, how hard I was going to work in that position. Um, and so you know, I went out and bought the food every day myself. Uh, you know, my parents helped me because they had like a, a Sam's Club card. And so we go to Sam's Club every day, buy the food, come back, and I would go there every night and make the food and sell it to the uh, inebriated right, clientele. The drunk patrons. Yeah. Perfect um, market. Yeah, it was great. I had them locked in, you know. <laughs> um, so as the night went on, the prices went up, um, supply and demand. And, uh, you know, we I had a lot of fun. I, I had a lot of fun, but um, eventually that lifestyle kind of uh, got the best of me. So basically, you know, you're you're have the right vision for your life, but – the money and then soon enough you're going to be on some sort of alcohol and drugs is is that naturally part of the course well sex yeah. drugs and rock and roll right um yes all, all of those things um so yeah for, for for me um you know i had i had been smoking marijuana which um uh you know i continued to do for for quite some time and i was you know drinking now that i was in the nightclub scene so let me um, stop you i want to ask you this because i think a lot of young people think well marijuana is no big deal or you know, and there certainly is a camp that say marijuana is a gateway drug. And with so much of the country legalizing marijuana, what, sure. what do you think about that? I mean, obviously, um, for your industry, you want people clean off of everything. Correct. What do you think about marijuana specifically? You know, I, I think that um, for me, marijuana was a gateway drug. Now, is it scientifically a gateway drug? I mean, I know plenty of people who smoke pot after work instead of drinking a whiskey um, and seem to do fine. Um but for your real drug addict or alcoholic, um, marijuana, in my opinion, is not a good uh, maintenance solution. And there are some centers out there that use marijuana to treat opioid addiction, for example. Um, in my mind, that's, that's harm reduction, which is great. It saves lives. It, it stops people from dying. But they're never going to get the chance to experience what sobriety is. They'll never be sober. Um, do I think that legalizing marijuana is going to lead to more abuse? Probably. Um, I think we've seen some of that already. I mean, it does generate quite a bit of tax revenue for the states who have uh, legalized it. I would like to see that tax revenue, though, put into treatment programs, just like I'd love to see some heavy taxes on alcohol put into treatment programs. Um, well, you know, the, you've brought up a couple of really good points as far as um, legalizing marijuana. This is a, something that's come up before on our show. But, but my feeling as a criminal defense attorney mm -hmm. is that it will stop police from actually finding other illegal drugs because the smell of marijuana gets sure. you a free search of somebody's automobile, sure. their person. Sure. Um, and so if you say marijuana is now legal and you pull someone over and they may be involved in some other nefarious criminal activity, the police may never find out about it. They may never know they have an ounce of cocaine in their glove box because they have no other reason to get there. So True. it probably would hurt my industry as well. Sure. <laughs> um, sure. And, you know, ultimately I think that I also am opposed to legalizing marijuana because I think that young people, if, if something like that is legal, it's going to be easier for them to have access to. And it's going to, you know, slow down their, you know, desire to be on Shark Tank if they're yeah. sitting at home yeah. and, getting high and playing Call of Duty. And so I think that's the, the important part, especially when talking to adolescents and youth, is that, um, you know, we just say no does not work. I did just say no in school and then I did a lot of cocaine. Right. Um, you know, the, the D.A.R.E. programs don't seem to generally work. And I think the whole scared straight thing doesn't work with our youth. I think it's important to just be open and honest with them and just have a conversation. Marijuana may not kill you. You're, you're probably not going to smoke it the first time and be a drug addict. Um, but it will take away some of your uh, ambitions. You know, if you wanted to be a professional ball player, probably not going to do that smoking pot every day. I mean, we saw what happened to our, our some of our favorite athletes from Texas, Ricky yeah. Williams. Yeah. Um, you know, he had great, great aspirations and potential. Sure. Um, and it didn't work out for him yeah. because he he had that dependency. Sure. Um, and, and maybe he thought it made him a better ball player. But sure. at the end of the day, it, it really did end up hurting him and, and, right. and lower his aspirations. I think there's a there's a fine line to walk to. You know, I, I see plenty of high school athletes who sprain their ankle ankle and the doctor puts them on Oxycontin so they can play the next game. Um, you know, I think that does more damage than smoking a joint. Me personally, that's, and, that's my opinion. And I think that, you know, you had said, and I don't know if we had said this on air already because it's early, so we mm -hmm. might have had this conversation sure. outside of, 
But your rehab may not be for everybody, but it is it is certainly for certain kinds of people. So if someone is addicted to marijuana um, the, and they want to try to become unaddicted to marijuana, mm -hmm. you may not be the right facility for them. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it depends on how that marijuana is affecting their life, right? Okay. So if they're addicted to marijuana um, and they've gotten one traffic ticket and, um, you know, they don't really feel good about it, do they need treatment? Possibly. Are we the right treatment center for them? Probably not. Um, if they're smoking marijuana, they've been arrested 17 times. Um, you know, they they continue to lose jobs. They've dropped out of school. They, um, you know, the girlfriends have have left them. Parents are frustrated. We may be a better fit for that client. Then I mean, we're we're a fit for folks who are drug addicts and alcoholics. We're not a fit for folks who are social drinkers. That's just not our clientele. So back to back to your story. You kind mm -hmm. of start down the drug. Yeah. And fun path. And very fun. Yeah. And at yeah. some point you realize this isn't this isn't the best thing that yeah, that so, is working for my lifestyle. Right. So I went from being um, a very happy young man uh, in, in my uh, take on it. Um, you know, I was my brother helped me become wildly successful. Um, we made a lot of money. And also our, wild. Yeah. <laughs> very wild, although he did several times. Uh, try and tame me. I, you know, my brother was very different than me. He could just stop drinking. That was not my experience. Um, and he would talk with me and say, hey, you know, you can have fun, but but this other stuff has got to stop, you know, have a beer, smoke a joint, don't do the other stuff. Um, and I would look at him and say yes, and then do all the other stuff. Um, I was a guy who, uh, you know, the, the first time I did cocaine, I looked at my friends and said, if I continue to do that, I will be addicted. And they were like, no, you're fine. And I was like, okay, give me the bag um, and continue to do it. Um, and so for me, it, uh, you know, it, it spiraled pretty quickly to the point where I, um, so, you know, I still had, I still had money. I had a brand new BMW, had apartments in different states. Um, and I absolutely hated myself, hated my life, loathed myself, couldn't look at myself in the mirror, um, was disgusted with everything that I had become. Um overwhelming feelings of loneliness and just self-hatred. Um, and so that's, it was, that was the breaking point for me internally. Um, the breaking point for my family was, um, you know, I was doing drugs and my family wasn't going to put up with that. Um, so. Well, we do need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. Sure. Uh, and we're, we're not taking a break from your exciting story. Sure. We'll be back to hear more about your road to recovery the last resort, and some other issues that our country's dealing with for, from a crisis standpoint. This is Justice is Blonde. Do you want to know what's going on in Conroe? Tune in to Keeping Up with Conroe. Keeping Up with Conroe will highlight upcoming events and local businesses in the area. Keeping Up with Conroe will air the second Tuesday of every month at 11 a.m. and will be hosted by the Conroe CVB staff. Keeping Up with Conroe will highlight Conroe's amazing attractions for residents and visitors. So tune in to Keeping Up with Conroe and join the staff of the Conroe CVB every month on Lone Star Community Radio. For more information about Keeping Up with Conroe and the Conroe CVB, go to visitconroe.com. This is Andrea Kolsky. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And today, what is it, Dick? February 23rd? 2nd? Wow, man, I'm, I'm rocking and rolling through this week. February 21st. And we're joined by very special guests from Austin, Austin area. North Austin, South Austin, West Austin. East Austin. East Austin. Wow, I had the last one I had left. Smithville, Texas, to be Smithville, sad. Texas. And we're joined by special guests Austin Berry and... Peter Pirano, he's Italian, in case you're listening at home. Um, and they run and participate in and facilitate this wonderful rehab facility, the last resort outside of Austin. So besides your facility in Austin, what else is there to do in Smithville? <laughs> so I actually bought a home in Smithville. I okay. love it there. So people um, could visit you. They could. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a small town living with uh, close proximity to Austin. 
Uh, we also have a, a intensive outpatient counseling office there, so you could also okay, get so some, you could get more counseling. You can get more counseling. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great little community. Um, got what's, some great. What's the state. population, Peter? Uh, I think it's like uh, eleven hundred people or something like that. Eleven hundred. But we we just approved the new ten million dollar football stadium, so that's coming. so there's going to be a cool football play. Friday night lights. Yeah. Friday night lights. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you know, Peter's from New York, Long Island, and like I've known him now for about three years, and I, I can't even imagine him in New York anymore. I mean, sure. outside he's got his Dodge Ram pickup <laughs> truck. He wears cowboy boots. Yeah. He lives in Smithville. Yeah. It's well, just I, unbelievable. I mean, I, I have a saying, which is if you're not from, I, I think I stole it from a bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. If you're not from Texas, it's not your fault. You got here as soon as you could. That's true. And, That's and true. I was telling you, Peter, um, that I originally am also from upstate New York. So I am here because I hate winter mm -hmm. and because I love Texas people. Yeah. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I also like the shortened winners. Yeah. I, I appreciate that if somebody, if I accidentally cut somebody off here, if I make a mistake while driving. You're going to live. Well, usually they just <laughs> wave, you know, and they'll kind of give me a look. In New York, there was a lot of screaming and middle fingers and cuss words had to be exchanged. It was and, like a rite of passage. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of, you had to do that, you know, to, to make the day go by. So. Well, so before the break, we were talking about mm -hmm. kind of your transition from nightclub owner to executive director of rehab facility from... Sure rocking and rolling in New York to sure. kind of taking it easy in Texas yeah. and, and running a rehab. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, you know, I'm very pro-Texas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I know is great about Texas is that we have a lot of rehab facilities. Now, obviously, for fellas, we would say that yours is the best. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah. Which is the last resort in Smithville. Mm -hmm. But it is a, a state and an area where you guys are at that seems to have a lot of opportunities to people that are dealing with addiction. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, so the great thing about um, the Texas, Texas in general, is that it's easy to do business here. So folks, it's, it's easier to help people get the help they need in Texas, um, as opposed to other states. Um, the Austin area specifically, um, for everything that Austin is or isn't, um, they tend to be more open-minded um, and kind of embrace the recovery community, uh, which is a, is a great plus for us. Um, where we can have a facility that's remote enough in the country, um, but still close enough to Austin. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Austin community tends to, uh, to really um, welcome um, people looking to better their lives into that community. So it's, it's good. Yeah. And also as someone who grew up in New York, one of the things that I know that you've met with up there is, is when you first had your issues with addiction and you decided that you wanted to get help, it mm -hmm. was trying to find a therapeutic community that you know, kind of met your needs. Yeah. And, and I know you struggled with that. I did. Yeah. So, you know, really what saved my life in New York, um, was a couple things. One, I had a, I had a strong family who wasn't going to allow, um, what I was doing to continue. Um, and whether that meant that, um, they were going to love me back to health or cut me off completely, they were willing to do whatever it took. Um, so there was that. Did they do both? Um, they loved me and cut me off at the same time. <laughs> okay, yes, right. Um, my, you know, and so um, my parents are, you know, the greatest people that I've ever met, uh, like a lot of us. Um, Mine are also. Right, exactly. So that we would have to compete. Sure. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, when when it, when it kind of came to a head, um, you know, my parents did everything they could, you know, that they made sure that I did not have access to funds. Um, you know, my dad took the license plates off my car, or my license plates, but he, right. you know, he took, took the license plates off. Um, and the he whole, made sure you weren't street legal, right? The, <laughs> the family intervened on me and, and took away my access to, um, to going back out there and killing myself. Um, had you met any legal obstacles before that? Had you been arrested, jailed, convicted um, of anything? Yeah. You know, I was, I was arrested when, so I only have one real major arrest, which is sealed, but I'll talk to you about okay. it. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I was 16, uh, I was driving in a car with some of my friends. I was the passenger. And I threw um, some fireworks out of, out of the window. Okay. And I was just playing around. I was a kid. Right. And I didn't see the police car there. Um, Did you get charged with littering? Uh, throwing <laughs> throwing explosives at oncoming vehicles. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, um, certainly worse. And littering. so the, the, uh, the, the firework was a fountain, a big fountain sparkler. And okay. it landed on the hood of the police car that was parked in the woods and uh, okay. shot sparks all over the car and her, um, the police officer. And she came out of the car kind of putting the fire out on her. 
on her vest and taking me to jail. Rightfully so. Right. I mean, you yeah, know, that's I, the I completely right. deserve that. Right. Although I honestly did not see the police car. Um, but yeah, you know, I had had some legal consequences. I had a lot of close calls, um, to be honest with you, that um, I don't know if it's God or luck. Uh, you know, I uh, got pulled over one time with um, multiple ounces of cocaine in the car and, uh, and a gun and uh, a loaded gun uh, in New York. Um, so all said and done, I probably had about 14 life sentences on me right. in New York time. Um, and somehow walked away from that, you know, whether that's, um, God, luck, privilege, whatever we want to call it. Um, a good Tuesday, a, gra <laughs> a great Tuesday, um, which was, you know, one of the wake up calls for me was, uh, you know, if I was lucky enough or blessed enough, um, to not end up in jail for the rest of my life, um, I probably should try doing something with it. And maybe try to pay it forward, give it back, share yeah. some of your experiences. Yeah, so I, I had a uh, I had a really great therapist, um, this guy, Dr. Uh, Dr. Cardaris, and I walked into his office and told him that I was bipolar, and he kind of laughed at me and was like, son, you do cocaine, and you go up, and you come down, right. and you're not bipolar, you're a drug addict. <laughs> right. um, and so he told, him, told it to me straight um, and told me that I needed to go to 12-step meetings and to get my life back on track and to stop being such a schmuck was the kind of the words right, he used, excuse right. my language. Um, and I listened for whatever reason. You know, he was he was a great mentor to me and still is today. Um, and so I had great people in my life. I had the right people at the right time, and I had the opportunity to access those people. What was hard, like you mentioned, was um, New York has limited treatment options. And the treatment options that they have, in my opinion, has not kept up with the national the standards. The demand. Well, not only the demand, but the national standards. So the treatment that we provide um, at the last resort is – you know, hands down a hundred times better than the treatment that I received in New York. Now I got the message, you know, I, I got the message that I, that I needed to stay sober. I ended up going to treatment. I was there for about eight days. My insurance cut off and they put me out on the street. Um, I was in a rehab with 56 other people. Um, last time I knew I was the only one sober from those 56 people. Um, a lot of the guys that were in there with me are, are dead now um, from addiction. Probably so, some of them are also incarcerated. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, so, yeah. that's kind of a um, byproduct. Yeah. You see, either you get well, you die, or you go to jail. Those are the only options with addiction. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that was disheartening for me about that area. And one of the, one of the draws for me to Texas was the fact that um, there's a lot more opportunity to help people here. Well, I mean, and this is, this is just my New York experience. I grew up in a small town, and, and there was major zoning, so much so that we weren't allowed to have a fast food restaurant within 30 miles of the city. So I Correct. can imagine that trying to get um, a rehab facility into an area where they won't allow you to have a McDonald's is, is difficult yeah. from a, from a New Yorker mentality. Yeah. I know um, on Long Island, there's a, uh, there's a place called Seafield and they, you know, they, so there's a there's an opioid epidemic nationally. Absolutely um, agree and absolutely want to cover that in this show. And so the tri-state area or, you know, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, they're having a, a lot of young folks die at an alarming rate. Um, and so there was one treatment facility who bought an old abandoned convent. It was going to turn it into a treatment facility just for women, 70 beds. Um, and the people in the town put up billboards that said, you know, these women are going to kill your children, rape your children. Right. Um, don't let them build it. And they didn't let them build the facility. And this is a facility that um, has been operating a center on Long Island for, you know, 30 years, has, has a decent reputation and was trying to help the community. Um, and the nimbyism kind of crushed all that. So, yeah. The not in my backyardism. Right. I had to figure that yes, out. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, as far as the opiate addiction, mm -hmm. So that I, that is something we've also discussed on past shows is is there is at least here in Texas there is a little bit of a legislative move to um, to make it harder if you are a opioid consumer mm -hmm. and I'm talking about legal opioids sure. um, but I'm Vicodin mm -hmm. things of that nature which the generic um, is hydrocodone or people call it Norco mm -hmm. or um, oxycodone or, or that whole family. Sure for those viewers listening at home, but heroin is also an opiate, right? Yep. What, what are some other opiates that are kind of in the same family? You know, so uh, I think people often don't understand that, you know, Oxycontin is just heroin in a, in a pill form. Legal. Right. Um, and so, you know, you have your, your basic painkillers, Oxycontin, um, you know, like you said, Vicodin, Percocet, Percodan, um, fentanyl, um, then something simple as Tramadol. You know, Tramadol is an opioid. 
um, you know, Suboxone, which helps people get off. Get of, off heroin. Right. Activates the same receptors as, as, as taking opioids. So you're replacing one for the other. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been interesting to watch this wave kind of sweep the nation. Um, you know, we're starting to see some outrage now. Um, how much action we'll see? I don't know. Well, I think that part of the problem and not to be mean spirited is that the drug companies make a lot of money and they have more money than, than the rehab industry. So when you have the folks with the biggest wallets writing the biggest checks to their, to their, um, congressmen and senators, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are going to have more power to, to, you know, say, well, we can dance around this legislation or what have you until, until something actually happens to a member of their family. Right. So I was talking to some friends the other day and the part for me that really, that really kind of blew my mind as a nation is where we got to a point where on, um, kind of primetime TV, there was a commercial, um, where a construction worker was saying, you know, do you have opioid induced constipation? Take this other drug. Right. And I was sitting there looking at the TV like this is really where we're at as a nation, that there right. are so many people on opioids and it's so widely accepted that you need to take another medication so that you're not constipated. From it's it. not right. only it's not only that, too, that that commercial was ran during the Super Bowl. Yeah. The Super Bowl. Yeah. So. Right. So th- that's the kind of poll that that um, was it a good commercial, at least, because I didn't see very many good ones this I year mean, at the Super Bowl. If you <laughs> was had, it otherwise entertaining? If you had opioid and constipation, it's <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. That's probably great. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, the, I, I think um, there was a time where you sprained an ankle, you got opioids, you For had sure. your teeth out, you got opioids. A lot of doctors have started to educate themselves on uh, the effect of those. Um, well, and I think at least I've seen personally folks that I've represented that essentially mm-hmm. go to these, what we would call pill mills. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, and you would go to this location to pick up records and it didn't remotely look like a doctor's office. Yeah. It didn't appear that there was a ton of... Um, Treatment. education or sure. other um typically off highway six other x-ray equipment or things where you're going to have any other type of of um examination mm-hmm. other than just sort of a self-reporting this is what's happening to me sure. and can I, I because of this is what's happening then you know this is where i am now yeah and and they would get prescriptions and at least due to legislation over the past five years or so they've made it where if you go into a doctor's office or a psychiatrist's office and you try to get certain medications, that's emailed to all the pharmacies. So the doctor has a duty to essentially look at your history before they write that script. And it puts some onus back on the doctors to basically make sure that you're giving somebody medication that's not abusing it. Right. And yeah, so they've created a national database which can, you know, help flag a medication so you can't pick up the same medication from five different pharmacies in the same month. Um, so there are some steps being taken, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll but people are going to find it. So, you know, when you do yeah. have the people that can obtain it legally and they can, you know, get it from their insurance for four bucks sure. and they can get 30 to 60 and they yeah. can sell it for 10. Yeah. It's just simply, you know, maybe it's easier for them to do that than, than get a real paying job. Yeah. Um, there, that could be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they could be addicted to it themselves and just right. trying to, um, you know, feed their habit. Um, you know, there is still ease of access, like you're saying. I mean, there there are, uh, there was a place uh, recently where um, the gentleman parked a van outside of a strip club. And so you would go to the strip club. You would go into the van, get your MRI. Um, okay. They would prove that you had some back issue with that MRI. Right. And you would take it next door to another mobile pharmacy, get your Oxycontin, and then you can go into the strip club. So, you know, um, great business model for that, for that, uh, for those folks. Right. Um, they made millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, a lot of people probably died because of it. Um, so, you know, there is an ease of access. And when there is a lot of money to be made, obviously, there's going to be people who are going to find ways to make it. Um, our job um, is to help the folks who are on the other end of it to try and save their lives. I mean, and certainly what happens in a lot of cases is people don't ever intend to get addicted to it to begin with. For example, they go in, they have their wisdom teeth taken out or they have a, a disc issue and they can't afford surgery or they, they're afraid that they can't take two weeks off of work to have the surgery completed. And so, you know, they originally get 30, 30 day supply and then they need more just because they've built up a tolerance to the medication. Correct. Um, and, and that's basically a way for them to function in society. But then what ends up happening is, is sometimes they get behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they mix that with other things or just sometimes it, it um, really takes its toll and they, and they yeah. either run into legal issues they need to get out of, or they run into, um, personal issues where they say, I I don't want to live this way anymore. 
Yeah, for a lot of people, what we see is, you know, they're prescribed um, pills legally, not understanding the full scope of what it is. Um, you know, they may see something start to go wrong as they start to take more than prescribed, um, but still not fully grasping it. Not until the doctors cut them off or wean them off do they understand that they're addicted. And oftentimes those people end up turning to heroin, um, which is cheaper and readily available. And probably has a better feeling for them initially or later down the road. I would assume. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm not a, a heroin user. Um, I did use pills and a lot of other um, drugs, but I didn't use heroin. But it, but it, it seems that, yes, they're, they're able to get their... Um, the desired feeling quicker. Yes, ma'am. Well, we do need to take a break to hear from our sponsors, but when we come back, I want to talk about steps to recovery at the last recovery. I also want to talk about, you know, drug tests and things of that nature, ways people try to beat them and, and whether you guys test at your facility and, and kind of life after the arrest or life after, you know, the decision to change has, has been initiated. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. For those of you who like your partners, your gumbo, and your music salty, well, we're here to help with the music. Julian Shea here, host of Lone Star Country Nights Thursday, your weekly dose of roots and Americana and all the music that makes this part of the country special. We stir in western swing, honky-tonk, Zydeco, Texas blues, outlaw country, and put a pinch of red dirt, and then we smoke it over a slow fire. Then listen to the results Thursday nights on Conroe's 104.5 and 106.1 and worldwide at IRLoneStar.com. This is Andrea Polsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And today we're super happy to be joined by Executive Director for Last Resort Recovery in Smithville, Texas, Peter Pirano, and one of his all-stars, Austin Berry, helps with marketing. He's a director of marketing, makes sure everybody's visits are pleasant. Those visits are developed to the maximum of people's enjoyment. Also, just a very all-around pleasant fellow, Austin Barry. We're really happy to have you. Thanks for having me. And before the break, we were talking a lot with Peter about his kind of road to recovery. Um, he was had some addiction issues that he confronted head-on. Therapy has helped him a little bit. of rec- He had some a little bit of recovery in New York, but we were kind of talking about how that was a little bit of subpar recovery. But you yourself, did you have issues with addiction you're open to talking about? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I, I've been struggling— or I did struggle with addiction. It started. It started with marijuana too. I mean, you could actually probably go back to alcohol as first. If somebody asked me what my gateway drug was, I I would probably say alcohol because that was the first thing I drank and kind of moved me down the line of other of other, other drugs. Um, but I'm a Houston kid. I went to Memorial High School. You know, um, had a gr- two great loving parents. Got gave me everything I needed, everything I wanted. You know, there was no reason in my life why, you know, I should turn to drugs and alcohol. I didn't have any severe trauma. Nothing happened in my childhood that would drive me to, you know, using the drugs I used. Um, So, you know, it started with cocaine in high school, and then I went off to the University of Alabama, and the first day I was there, my my roommate in the dorm, he was a little older than I was. He was like 28 in a freshman dorm. He was like a seventh year Yeah, so it couldn't couldn't (laughs) have been good. And uh, he introduced me to this little pill, and it was called Oxycontin. And I, you know, I mean, I can remember thinking about it just, well, you know, he got it from a doctor. What's the big deal? Right. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like even like I took it. We, we snorted it. Right. Um, and that just kind of started the spiral where, you know, it was about two years of Alabama of just pretty much crashing and burning. And I remember bouncing from my bed to my couch, my bed to my couch and like thinking I had the flu and thinking I had mono and going to the doctor and I and telling them I have mono. I, I don't know what's going on, but these were all periods. This is how naive I was. These were all periods in between my addiction where I just couldn't buy any more drugs. And I was experienced withdrawal, but I didn't know what withdrawal was. Um, and so eventually- It feels a lot like mono, I guess. <laughs> it, it, oh, yeah, a little bit, probably a lot worse. And uh, eventually I ended, ended up back in Texas and I was able to get clean from the pills for a while and I just drank. And I was able to hold that together for about seven months or so. And I, I was, I was telling you before the show, I was working for this hunting club, and I and I got in a four wheeler accident, and so I had stitches in my face and in my arm, and and they prescribed me Vicodin. Um, and so you know, I took one pill, and boom, two days later, that whole bottle was gone of dirty pills. 
and I was just back running and gunning again. Um, eventually, you know, I had some consequences with the law uh, with Harris County. Um, I was arrested for a DWI on my 21st birthday, um, and I was put on probation. And I, I do you remember the, the, the divert program? Sure. Yeah. So I was like number two in the divert program. And so it was a pretty intense program. You had to complete all the outpatient. You had to show up uh, monthly for drug testing. You had to have an interlock in your car. Interlock in a camera. So it's, you know, these type of situations, I wanted to bring this up is because it's like instances in my life where a normal person, when they get arrested like this and they get a breathalyzer in their car, you know, and if they fail a drug test or fail a breathalyzer, I was 90 days automatically in jail. A normal person would be like, I can't drink anymore. I shouldn't drink. And I remember right. telling my lawyer um, and my dad, we were in the courthouse and it was Paul Doyle. And I was talking to him and he was like, well, can you do this? Can you not drink for a year? And I, and I sternly told him I can do this. And I, and I thoroughly believed it. At, yeah. And that day you did. At, yeah. That yeah. day, two days later, I was drinking again. And sure enough, it just slowly and gradually got bigger and bigger. And, you know, I was really into pills. And so what I would do is I would, you know, they call it the H-Town cocktail and it was Vicodin, Xanax and muscle relaxers. And so I would take those. And about five days before I had to go see my PO, I would stop taking them, go through withdrawal, go in there, do a UA, pass the UA, you know, put on the show, put on the front for my probation officer and make it through the next month. And immediately when I got out of the PO, I'd call my drug dealer up. And this kept on happening month after month until eventually it got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore, where it was the night before my PO and I was with, you know, I was picking up drugs, I was picking up pills and, and my drug dealer at the time knew I had to see my PO the next day. And he was like, what are you doing? And I, I said, I just can't do it. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. Um, so then I started to kind of wake up. Um, and eventually I was, I was lucky enough that, you know, my brother was in long-term recovery and he heard through the grapevine that I was struggling. And my dad came in and intervened on me and it was pretty much either get help or just you're out of the family and we don't want anything to do with you and you're cut off. And he kind of brought that tough love I needed at the time. And uh, I moved out to Austin to get sober. And I was fortunate enough to find a great collegiate recovery community at the University of Texas. Great school where I went to law school. Hook them. And, uh, you know, <laughs> better I than Alabama, no offense. Eh, I don't know about that one. Uh, maybe some things. I don't know about football. Um, Not at football, just in general. <laughs> but I, I was able to find them and I found like, you know, and, and the biggest thing for we stress to our guys, too, at the last resort is it's just really about the community and the brotherhood. Of course, you got to do the 12 steps and get the clinical help you need. But like if you're not like completely diving in and surrounding the people in your life with everybody who's there to support your recovery, um, you're going to fail. Toxic and, environment. Exactly. And so that's what I did. I mean, everybody around me was in recovery and we were all in college A students and we, we had a lot of fun in Austin, which is a great city to get sober in. And we went to shows, we went to ACL, played volleyball, played softball. You're, are you everybody's designated driver? You know, I was. I was for <laughs> uh, for a while. Um, the guys I worked with, you know, um, but that was the biggest thing for me. And, you know, I was able to put 18 months together and eventually I uh, was, you know, I was doing school and, and work full time and I, need, and I needed that extra boost. And I was prescribed Adderall as a kid growing up and in high school I was. And so I went to a doctor to get a prescription again. And and if you're like me and if you're like Peter, we can't put any kind of mind altering substances in our body, even if it's from a doctor, if you're right. a real alcoholic and uh, started taking those again. Eventually, I went back out for another three months and I was able to get clean and I was able to go through the 12 steps and my life was changing for the better. And I met Bill and Ann Schneider and they gave me an opportunity to come work at the last resort um, really early on, right when they opened. And I only had like 90 days sober. Um, but they saw that I was doing whatever it took and they let me live on property. And I, I took the three to 11 shift and I drove them into meetings at night into Austin. And I was kind of, you know, I held them accountable and, and I did what a tech does, but you know, I was a really part of that first group because I was living out there. And so the last resort literally saved my life and I'm forever grateful. And I, and I, I believe it's the best in the country just because of what it did for myself, you know? So. Well, so if folks find themselves listening to the show and they they themselves are a loved one and they happen to be a fella. First of all, you have to be a fella, um, find themselves in that sort of addiction cycle or, or, um, kind of thinking where 
just like Austin said, where you originally, you know, you think you can do it and then all of a sudden you can't, you know, you want to, you can reach out to these folks. They have a website, it, they're easy to find and they're very accessible and they take a lot of, um, most insurance companies you work with, all the big ones, am I correct? Yeah, correct. We're in network with Blue Cross, Magellan, so we could do Blue Cross HMOs and we're in network with Humana and then we work with all other private insurance uh, companies, United, Aetna. So people shouldn't think, well, I can't afford a private rehab. That's just for folks in Hollywood. You guys are accessible, available. Um, try to be as affordable as possible because you want to help as many folks in the community as possible. Right. So our, our program um, is not free, but at the same time, we're not going to bankrupt somebody. That's that's not our goal. There are a lot of facilities out there that are quite expensive. We're, we're just not one of them. Our, our goal is to keep it affordable for folks. Um, and if there is a female out there that's struggling, they, you know, she can call us as well and we'll help her. You'll help her get directed Absolutely. to the right location. Absolutely. I think there's just so many options out there. And, and you're seeing it recently in the news, um, especially with Google. And, like, they're cracking down on the way people advertise and market treatment centers because what's going on in California and what's going on in South Florida and, and, and the fraudulent billing and the fraudulent drug testing. And, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, just like any other business, they get into it for the wrong reasons. They see the dollar signs and they're exploiting uh, vulnerable parents and vulnerable kids. Well, what I want to talk to you about is that at your facility, do you do you do drug testing? Peter can so, touch on that. So we drug test um, a client one time when they get in. Okay, so you kind of know what they're... Correct. Into. And then uh, if needed. So if there's any... If it's for court, if it's court required or court what have required, you. Court required or the doctor needs levels to be able to monitor that person closely um we also don't charge for any of our drug tests so that's so the addiction industry has been fraught with um fraud for, for quite some years and, and drug testing is part of that and, and, so, and i wholeheartedly agree with you and i'd like to discuss that yeah. as a little side subject sure. but but um but as far as if somebody comes in and they're mm -hmm. addicted to heroin and there's no doubt they're addicted to heroin yes, and um and but a typical addiction um, for heroin or treatment might you might give them Oxycontin, or you might give them Suboxone if you are not your facility. Am I correct? That may be a way to wean them off that? Well, so, yeah, I mean, uh, medically assisted treatment now is where they put people on uh, Suboxone or Subutex or something to that effect, and they keep that person on it indefinitely. It's a maintenance drug. Right. Um, so it's replacing one drug with another. person could be on it for, you know, the rest of their lives. Um, the withdrawals from Suboxone are actually worse than the withdrawals from heroin or, or Oxycontin. So we do not do that at our facility. We will detox a person from um, whatever substance they're using, but we will not put them on maintenance drugs. No so, so that's what I'm saying. So somebody shows up, they're addicted to some drugs. It's clear they're addicted and sure. they need to detox. Yeah. And, and you have at your facility medical, you have doctors on staff. We do. We have 24-hour nursing. We have doctors on staff. So yeah. if somebody's detoxing, you have resources that will yeah. make sure that they do it safely. I mean, it's going to be unpleasant and uncomfortable most likely, but yeah, so you'll make sure they right, end up okay on the other side. It's... First things first is it's safe, um, medically monitored. Is it going to be extremely comfortable? No, but at the same time, it shouldn't be. Um, you know, they used to do this thing called wa uh, rapid detox where they would knock a person out and detox their system completely in 24 hours. Those folks have the highest uh, rate of relapse and overdose in the country. It's outlawed in most states now. Uh, the person who's going through withdrawals doesn't need to, to suffer, but at the same time, they do need to be able to listen to their body and kind of understand what's happening. Um, and, and have that with them as they move forward in the process of recovery. So I have a client that um, has a Xanax addiction. Sure. And he has a um, Xanax abuse and addiction. And every time he takes Xanax and abuses Xanax um, and is, and is, well, he has, no, because unfortunately his lawyer's too good. Sure. Um, so, <laughs> but unfortunately what happens is as he's detoxing, he um, will often dislocate his arm. Yeah. Like, so he'll dislocate his, his body as he's detoxing. Is that something you experience? Well, I would hope that as he's detoxing, he's detoxing at a medical it's facility. It's at a medical facility. Yeah. yeah he um, seems to go to the same urgent care place. So uh, Xanax is, a, is in the benzodiazepine family, same as Klonopin. Um, And so you can die from withdrawals from, from benzodiazepines, uh, same as alcohol. Um, and so sometimes folks will have seizures uh, dependent upon um, how severe their withdrawal is. Sometimes they can dislocate um uh, you know, joints or, or, or things of that, that nature. Uh, we tend, we have not experienced that at, at our facility. Um, you know, our doctor is kind of monitoring them and making sure that that, uh, if he's having violent seizures where he's dislocating parts of his body, it may not be the correct procedure. 
the correct detox procedure that's happening. That should not happen uh, normally. Yeah. I haven't heard of that before, this, no. this young man. <laughs> no. Um, but we do need to take a break to hear from our, our sponsors. But when we come back, I do want to touch on the drug testing industry and, and how you guys feel about it. And from a legal perspective, kind of some of the battles as defense attorneys we're dealing with, dealing with drug testing facilities and uh, clients that are ordered to be drug tested. You're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. Hey guys, this is Connor. This is Dick. This is Chris. And we're with the Ticket Stub Podcast every Thursday live at noon on 104.5 and 106.1 FM in the Conroe area. Also, anytime at IRLoneStar.com. You go to IRLoneStar.com backslash TTS. You can find all of our social media. And don't forget, we give away two tickets to the Grand Theater on every show. If you like movies and you like complaining or celebrating anything that has to do with the silver screen, check out the Ticket Stub Podcast and join us every Thursday at noon o'clock on Lone Star Community Radio. This is Andrea Kolsky, and you're listening to Justice is Blonde on Lone Star Community Radio. And today we're super excited to be joined by Peter Pirano and Austin Berry from The Last Resort Recovery in Austin. They are heavily involved, um, very excited to help with folks that are addicts, need treatment as their last resort. Uh, and, they, and they specifically really specialize in, in men with opiate issues. And, and basically anybody that is at their wit's end, either legally, um, emotionally, from a family perspective, maybe they have gone through all their resources and they end up where they really do decide it's time to get help. Or maybe the court tells them you need to get help or you're going to go to jail. Um, so that's one of these great things that these, these folks can offer in Smithville. And before the break, we were talking about, you know, kind of the opiate crisis and, and some of the ways to detox and recover. And, and they have folks and staff there. But but I did want to talk about drug testing because I have recently, you know, in Montgomery County, there is now a, a drug testing procedure where people have to call in every day. And when they call in, if their ticket is up, they have to go do a drug test. And and the drug test winner of, of the bid from the probation department is the one who gives you the cheapest, the cheapest price and offer. And, and I have had, and I'm compiling a list of people that have gone to jail or had a warrant for their arrest because of a drug test that was essentially false. Um, and we all know that there's ways to alter drug tests. People can bring their own urine and, and there's all kinds of other um, issues that can happen. In fact, we did have somebody that tested positive after he brought in a friend's urine because the friend's urine was, was positive <laughs> and that's his own fault. Um, awesome. <laughs> take, you know, but I want to meet that guy <laughs> or his friend who's yeah. not that bright. Um, but but in all seriousness, you know, you have these facilities and you trust in them to to at least give you a, a, a good sample. And sure. and you have people going to jail for false drug tests when they're when they're doing the right thing and they're at the last resort or what sure. have you. What do you think about that? Have you experienced that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, drug tests can give you false positive all the time. Um, and so if you have normal procedure um, and ethical practices, if a client, uh, you know, you test that client and they test positive for, let's say, marijuana. And you go to him and you say, Johnny, you're, you're positive for marijuana. And Johnny's like, yeah, that's impossible. Um, right. The, the the ethical thing to do would be send that off for a confirmation. Right. To a confirmation lab, a separate lab, okay. who would then confirm the results and, and make sure that they're accurate. Because oftentimes, um, one drug test can have, uh, if it's a dip cup, can just have a bad adulterant in it. Um, and so that's typically how it's done. The issue is that sometimes that can get expensive. So let me ask you that. That's really, I think that that could be a great suggestion for some of these courts and judges is when you have somebody that comes in and says, absolutely not. I mean, I had it happen recently with a young lady that has an opiate problem and sure. she tested positive for meth and she's absolutely have, I've never done meth. I'm like, do you want to pass a polygraph? Do you want to do these other things? How do we show? And we ended up doing a hair follicle, which showed no meth. But I think certainly when you have um, the student regrading their own homework, yeah. um, you know, or then you're in a situation where, you know, if you don't send it off to a different lab, there's no checks and balances. They're going to say, Correct. oh, what did we say it was? That's what it was. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, it kind of goes both ways. Sometimes you have people who test negative who, you know, you know, they've been using drugs. Right. So 
you know, it, it's a, uh, it can, it can work twofold. So do you think we should outlaw drug testing altogether or what do you think we should do? What's, what's the answer? I think like anything, there's an ethical way to do it and there's a, a proper way to do it. I think that all facilities should be held to, um, to certain standards and practices and, uh, and there should also be restrictions on how much each facility can charge. So there's less incentive to, um, to recoup more profit from drug testing. That's, that's my personal opinion. And so basically, if you are in a situation where you have a legal fake test or a legal, you, you have, you're on drug court or something like that, where we have a great program here where you have to drug test every day and, and you have, let's pretend you're the judge and you have somebody say, I absolutely didn't use and, and they have a system where they have to rely on the drug test. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we change that do we just say we really really believe people <laughs> no we decide we're just gonna believe people that's not no, a there's a, there's an old saying that goes uh that says you know an addict is only lying when their lips are moving um which is you know my ex-husband sure. would also <laughs> have that issue so like, that can <laughs> that can add to some stigma um but the truth what the, the message that they're trying to get across is that we we cannot oftentimes cannot take an addicted person at their word um so if i was the judge i would order confirmation test pretty quickly. Um, and I, I would also give them consequences. I would say, look, you showed up positive. Um, I'm going to send a confirmation test. You can either tell me now if you did it and if you, you know, will will allow you to kind of wipe the slate clean, minimum consequences. If I get the confirmation test and it turns out that you've used and you've wasted my time, I'm tripling the sentence. Basically, you double or triple the, the whatever, consequence. Whatever the legal, um, whatever I could do legally is what I would do. Well, we really appreciate you guys hiking all the way down here from Smithville. Yeah. Texas to educate the folks in, in Conroe about your great rehab facility, The Last Resort. And I didn't want to end the show without kind of giving our uh, hearts and shout out to the families and folks that are affected in Parkland, Florida, after the terrible mass shooting. I mean, obviously, as a legal show, it's, you have to cover um, all legal issues. And, and we certainly, um, as a community, feel terrible for any anybody that would end up in a situation where they were essentially executed when they went to school. It's, it's absolutely terrifying and, and certainly a topic that we can discuss on a, a later show is, you know, our Second Amendment rights, you know, our Second Amendment being under siege and um, what we can do about that. But today we are very happy and pro-recovery and looking towards a very bright future with the gentleman from the Last Resort Recovery in Austin East. You're listening to Justice is Blonde.